Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 10th, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. Happy to welcome you to another edition of our program. It's your source each Friday for commentary and insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate law developments. This week, I'll speak with Carl Schusterman, a veteran immigration attorney in Los Angeles who spent some time as a counsel with the INS before founding his own immigration firm in 1982. We'll speak about immigration law, and the new presidential administration, which has already begun to attempt in no small measure to to impact immigration policy with regard to the the recent travel ban from certain Middle Eastern countries. It's, of course, only one area of immigration law the administration seems poised to impact. Mr. Schusterman and I will discuss that one, but a range of other areas of policy as well, including Mexican and Central American immigration and, and the likely impact this administration will have in the context of, say, professional NAFTA visas or H-1B. Mr. Schusterman walks us through the potential changes to those different areas of immigration policy and the likely legal challenges they will meet. I should note here before we get into my conversation, it was pre-recorded before the most recent decision handed down by the Ninth Circuit. So while we discuss the Washington versus Trump filing and its merits, we did not have a chance to regard the the most recent ruling, the, the denial of the TRO stay petition. The, the risk of pre-recording anything in this very fast-paced presidential administration, but we certainly cover a, a broad range of, of issues and topics and, and policy matters, and hope you enjoy the conversation. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Carl Schusterman. I'm very happy to be joined now by Mr. Carl Schusterman, a veteran immigration attorney from the law offices of Carl Schusterman. Mr. Schusterman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Brian. Um, we're talking about the new administration and Immigration policy, obviously, a very salient issue now, and I think the terrain that we could cover here is quite vast. We'll try to get to all the different aspects of this issue, maybe leading off with the most prominent at the moment, which I think is undoubtedly the the, uh, the recent executive order restricting travel or banning travel from seven Muslim-majority countries. Since that order has come down, certain federal district courts have granted some preliminary relief to petitioners. Could you tell me a bit about some of, of those rulings? That have come down and, and what petitioners specifically have been challenging? Well, there's been, uh, you know, there is a temporary ban on, on refugees and also people coming over on temporary visas. And then and, and at first, even for permanent residents coming over from these seven countries. And it's it was first challenged in New York. And now it's been challenged in Boston, Detroit, Washington state. And yesterday, uh, a federal judge in Los Angeles issued a temporary restraining order blocking the government from um, uh, refusing admission to people from those seven countries who have immigrant visas. In fact, one of the cases, which was kind of very heartbreaking, involved a a 12-year-old Yemeni girl who was coming on a green card that had been approved and she was just coming to join her brothers and sisters and her parents in uh, California, and she's been blocked now. The, the the reaction on the government side has been to say, oh, we, we've canceled all the visas, so nobody does have um, good visas to come over. Every, everybody from those seven countries, the State Department, after the order was promulgated, they canceled all their visas, so they're saying, well, we really can't comply with the judge's order because nobody has visas to even get on a plane to come to the U.S. It, what it sort of sounds like outwardly is a, a temporary restriction, so one that in a few months uh, folks holding visas now would still be able to use them, but you're saying that such visas were rescinded? Yes, that's that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I've never seen anything. I, I had worked as a prosecutor for the Immigration Service uh, over 30 years ago, and I, I, we've been through some tough times, you know, with 9/11 and so on. But I've never seen anything where they just take people from certain countries and revoke their visas. What was your reaction when when you heard, heard news of this order and then read its its broad application? Well, I, you know, I, uh, I I think pretty much each judge who in in all these different cities who. Uh, who's handled these cases, they, they've all reached the same conclusion that this seems to be highly illegal. You can't just take people because they're from a certain country and say, oh, they're not entitled to be refugees. They're not entitled to uh, 
uh, get visitors visas, immigrant visas. Uh, you know, <laughs> there were there were people who had been living in the U.S. Uh, you know, with green cards, and they went off on a business trip or on vacation or something, and they're just coming back to their families, and all of a sudden the executive order says no, uh, they can't be admitted to the U.S. So it seems pretty universal among the district court judges that this uh, is not in the government's power to do this, and violation of the immigration laws, violation of constitutional rights. Um, I mean, I, I was pretty shocked, but given given the tone of the campaign and all the talk about a Muslim ban, I, I can't say that I was totally surprised either. Okay, now, all of these preliminary challenges that, that have been brought are prelude to more substantive sort of frontal entire attacks on on the order. One has been filed by the state of Washington, a number of causes of action are brought by the state of Washington. There's a First Amendment Establishment Clause challenges, due process and equal protection challenges. There's a statutory violation claim based on the Immigration and Nationality Act. And there's also an Administrative Procedures Act, arbitrary and capricious cause of action. Um, could you maybe unpack a bit of the substance of these claims for me and, and then assess their, their merits as you see them? Well, yes. I mean, you know, they're saying that people cannot be denied entry into the U.S. because they're merely a particular religion or, or from a particular country. I mean, we do have the First Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, um, and we're, we're signatories to uh, international treaties. So if we can't send people back to a country where they would be persecuted, so they have right to uh, somebody uh, who's in the U.S., who's made it to a U.S. airport. If they uh, file a claim for asylum, there, there's a whole procedure that the immigration officials have always gone through. And this executive order seems to say, no, they don't have any right to do that at all. But that that, that is not true. On the other side of this issue, I think people will tend to cite the, the broad foreign policy powers possessed by the United States president. Uh, and I think the president himself has cited a 1952 law, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952. Um, what is that latter act? And then that in combination with the broad foreign powers of the president, are, are those sufficient justification for this order or uh, parts of it? Well, so... Yeah, so the the administration, not, notably the fellow who is the uh, um, he, he has a state job in in the in the state of Kansas, Chris Kobach, and uh, allegedly he had a hand in in drawing up this order. What they cite is a provision in the Fifty Two Act called uh, Section Two One Two F, and it says it, it's extremely broad. It says the president has the power to uh, exclude people from the U.S. that he determines uh, would have a, a, a derogatory impact on on the United States and doesn't seem to limit the power at all. I mean, <laughs> this is obviously before the U.S. signed on uh, to the to the refugee treaty, but it's certainly after the Constitution was passed. So there's there's been a lot of cases uh I'm thinking of some like Gene versus Nelson in 1985, which had to do with Haitians. And I mean, it, it was actually the very conservative majority on the Supreme Court ruled in that case. But they still they still said people could not be discriminated against, you know, based on their nationality. They can't just say that that case involved people being paroled into the United States. Um so I, I think all the plaintiffs have very properly brought up different constitutional arguments involving the First and the Fifth Amendment. Um, and, you know, and the statute 212F uh, just doesn't give complete powers to the president to do whatever he wants, although it, seem, it, it seems to say that, and that's what Chris Kobach is trying to defend but it doesn't supersede the Constitution. But the, yes, the president does have very broad powers. I, I distinctly remember after 9-11 that um, President Bush established something called the NSEERS program, where uh, males from uh, pretty much Muslim countries had to come in and register with the Immigration Service. But, I, you know, I, I represented some of these people. I mean, these people even... 
though they were from predominantly Muslim countries, uh, I remember a young man that I represented who was a Christian um, Indonesian, and we were able to get him political asylum, and then he became a green card, and last year we got him citizenship. So, um, you know, the president is given very broad uh, powers here, but it, it doesn't trample on people's constitutional rights. That there, there is a wall there. Do you personally have any clients that were affected by this executive order? Yes, I, uh, we do a lot of physician cases. So mm -hmm. physicians from foreign countries who come to the U.S. must do a medical residency in the U.S. and they usually come on a visa which compels them to go back home for two years after the residency. Um, However, there's a wonderful program that if these doctors go to medically underserved areas in the United States, and frankly, 25% of the United States is considered medically underserved, um, less than one primary care physician uh, per three and a half thousand residents. So this, this physician is doing that. He's got something called a national interest waiver because of what he's doing. He's just about to get a green card, but he's from one of those seven countries. And he called me up this week, and it's like, what do I do now? You know, yeah. <laughs> on one hand, they've, the government's given me a national interest waiver, and there's doctor. I, I can tell you, there's doctors like him all over the country. Uh, you know, attending to people in these underserved areas, and now they're branding him as if, well, you're from one of those countries. Maybe you're a terrorist. I mean, <laughs> if he if he's a terrorist, he's been living here for years, helping people. Um, in the United States, so it, it sort of makes no sense whatsoever. What did you think of the former acting attorney general's decision, Sally Yates, to refuse to defend this ban because of her uncertainty of its legal footing? And uh, in, in your opinion, regarding that legal footing, do you think once this order meets the, the wide volley of attacks, it will, that it will stand? Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> who knows what you know, what the courts will uh, decide, you know, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of it, it's sort of ironic that uh, uh, President Obama was getting so much criticism for doing uh, immigration policy by executive order, although he wasn't excluding people. He was uh, he was trying to give people work cards that weren't, uh, you know, who had children here and so on. Um, but, but then the new president takes power and he has a Republican Congress to back him up. But instead of trying to get bills through Congress to, you know, tighten up security and so on and so forth, he circumvents Congress before they even have a chance to do anything by issuing executive orders. Um, the same thing that uh, Obama was criticized for. Yeah. But as, to go back to Sally Yates, I mean, I think I think that was really pretty courageous what she what she did. I mean, I'm a private attorney. It's easy for me to criticize uh, what the government's doing. I'm not going to lose my job or anything, but she did it. And we all sort of knew that she was going to be fired almost immediately. And she was, but, um, but she had a lot of guts to stand up to the president. One of the justifications for this executive order is insufficient vetting of arrivals from, from these seven countries. To your knowledge, what, what are the current vetting processes that are in place? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the U.S. refugee process is like one of the, one of the most extreme vetting processes I've ever seen. I mean, there's literally 20 different steps. Uh, the first few are taken by the United Nations where they interview people who are refugees. The people have to register with the United Nations. If they if they pass all the tests, then the United Nations grants them status as a refugee and refers a very minuscule portion to the United States. I mean, in the last year or so, Germany took in uh, a million refugees. Uh, a, a good percentage of them were from Syria. Uh, the U.S., takes 110 uh, every year it's a little different but it's you know around 110,000 was the was supposed to be for this fiscal year which started on October 1st which is a tiny tiny portion of the uh, refugees and now now president trump has lowered that to 50,000 a year 
and also given priorities to religious minorities, meaning Christians in in Muslim countries. So with 50,000, you know, he could easily not admit a single Muslim. But to go back to the vetting, the um, so after after the UN does the first three or four steps, then the U.S. State Department gets uh, involved and they do background checks. They go to the FBI. They go to the uh, Department of Homeland Security database. Uh, they check, you know, with other countries to see if this person is on any kind of list and so on. And then only after they get through with that does the Department of Homeland Security come in. Um, I've done a number of asylum interviews down at the uh, Anaheim office uh, here and had the opportunity to talk to uh, some of the people who had gone to uh, Amman, Jordan, and, you know, they have refugee camps all over Jordan and interviewed Syrian refugees there. Um, in, you know, to summarize, it's about 20 different steps that the refugees have to go through, and the process takes at least two years to go through. Um, and, you know, the one interesting thing about the this executive order in the list of seven countries, you know, uh, people are saying, well, you know, there could be like one terrorist in this refugee group, so we shouldn't let in anybody. Um, but if very interesting to think about the seven countries, you know, Syria, Iraq, Iran, so on. Um, if you take all seven countries and then you think, you know, if this would have been in place before 9-11, would, would this have prevented the 9-11 attacks, the Boston Marathon massacre, the, um, the San Bernardino shooting and so on? And the fact is not one person in any of those came from any of those seven countries. So it, it's, it sort of defies logic, this executive order. Moving on to discussing immigration from a different portion of the country, obviously there's been quite a bit of rhetoric from the current administration in terms of immigration from Mexico and, and Central America. And two of President Obama's policies regarding such immigration were certainly targets of the current administration, although I don't think anything has happened related to them at this point. Um, could you describe to me a bit the, the details of those programs, and could you describe what you think the current administration's actions might be towards them? Sure. The, um, we've been trying to get immigration reform legislation as we were successful to get under President Reagan and under the first President Bush. Um, but, you know, when the second President Bush came in, uh, he tried to get immigration reform legislation through Congress, uh, couldn't do that. Uh, Obama also tried to do that, couldn't do that. And then finally, by 2012, I think Obama had at, at least decided to single out a group of people that he thought that there was pretty unanimous agreement that they should not be deported from the U.S. and they should be given encouragement to continue their education. And a lot of them were professionals and so on. So the, the, the first DACA, DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, so the, these are for kids that their parents brought them into the United States before they were 16 years old, and it only applied to uh, kids that uh, were under 31 when he promulgated the order in June 2012. They they had to have you know no felonies, no significant misdemeanors. They had to enter the U.S. before 2007. Um, they had to have a certain amount of schooling or an honorable discharge from the military. And about 800,000 people applied and got work cards through this program. I, I do a lot of volunteer work over at UCLA, my alma mater, and, and um, I met with numerous, numerous DACA kids who are on like the education abroad program. So they've gone to campuses all over the world and so on. And it's really it's it's really been wonderful for them because before DACA, how would they get a job? You know, when you get a when you have to fill out an I nine form to get a job in the United States, you have to show that you're legally able to work. And they, these people were all illegal in the United States. Now they have work cards. Um, seems like people in both countries are real, uh, in both parties, excuse me, are uh, in favor of this. 
I know that uh, recently Senator uh, Durbin and a Democrat from Illinois and Senator Graham, a Republican from South Carolina, uh, introduced a bill to make this part of the law. They, They don't call it DACA, but it's essentially the DACA program continuing. And what I think that the uh, President Trump is going to do is say, well, you know, the only thing, you know, we, we're not against the DACA policy. We just thought President uh, Obama exceeded his authority by doing it by executive order, sort of ironic in light of what we've been talking about. Um, but if Congress passes it, I, I will sign this. And I, I, I think he will do that. Um, the bigger problem is that in, in, uh, 2014, uh, President Obama expanded the DACA program, at least he announced that it was going to be expanded. And he also created a program called DAPA, D-A-P-A, which has to do with people who have U.S. citizen kids in the country but may not be legal themselves. Um, And before they could even enunciate the rules for these programs, uh, they the 26 states sued the uh, federal government in Texas, um, and it, it went to a very, very anti-immigration judge. I, I don't know why he didn't recuse himself, because he had made a lot of statements about these executive orders. So he ruled um, that it the president did not have the authority to promulgate these, not not the original DACA, but the expansion of DACA and the DAPA program. And then it went up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, who had a split decision, two, two to one, upholding the, the uh, lower court ruling. And then more recently, it went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was after the death of Justice Scalia, and they split evenly, 4-4. So in, in those cases, that upheld the Fifth Circuit ruling. So that will go. I have no, no hope that... Uh, President Trump will continue that program, but he he hasn't abolished it quite yet. Perhaps his most concrete immigration policy when it comes to Mexico and Central American immigrants is building a, a border wall along the, the, the Texas-Mexico border. Now, I think a number of problems have been identified from, from different folks uh, with regard to this idea in terms of the physical logistics of it and the financial realities. Of it. What is your opinion on on the idea of the wall in terms of its logistics and also its legality and just in terms of its practical effects on immigration? You know, it's if if it were that easy, just well, we'll build a wall and then you know, there <laughs> the problem of having undocumented people in the U.S. will just fade away. I mean, that that would be almost too easy to believe. But um, I mean, we're we're talking about a project that, in anybody's estimation. Is, is going to cost tens of billions of dollars. There's, there's, there's really no funding for it. I mean, that the campaign speech was, well, the Mexicans will pay for it, they'll pay for it. But of course, they've said time and time again, they're not going to pay any money for this wall. Um, and there, the, I, I can almost guarantee you, there's not going to be tens of billions of dollars appropriated by uh, Congress for this. So um, I don't see it happening. But it's gone back and forth where, you know, up to the election, it was going to be this big, beautiful wall. After the election, all of a sudden, it's like, well, we might have fencing and, you know, won't won't be this big concrete wall. Uh, So, you know, we do have the Rio Grande River between uh, uh, most of Texas and Mexico. Um, We do have border fencing in, uh, you know, around the San Diego area. But to just put up this huge wall and think, oh well, people can't climb over the wall, or they, you know, they won't be making tunnels like you know it's been found in the past, is is just kind of a dream. It's not really true. Maybe the even more interesting part of this is that they did a survey between 2009 2014, and they they figured out that more people from Mexico left the U.S. than entered the U.S. during that time period. So, you know, is is this really worth billions of dollars to, you know, uh, also um, Mr. Trump, besides putting up a wall, 
he would increase the number of Border Patrol agents for over 5,000 people. When, when I was a prosecutor, there were only a very few thousand people on the U.S.-Mexican border, and now they've tripled or quadrupled it. It's over 22,000, and he's going to add another 5,000 or more. Um, people should realize that, you know, when it comes to the border, uh, we have two borders. There's one up in Canada that's even longer than the Mexican border. Um, I don't know. I, I don't even I'm, I'm trying to think of a single case where a terrorist came across the Mexican border. But I can think of cases where terrorists came across the Canadian border and unfortunately were caught by Border Patrol officers, even though there's very few of them. Um, I think what the public really needs to know is that even though, you know, there are people that cross our borders illegally, um, it's a much bigger problem than that. I mean, people come to the United States from poorer countries um, and then overstay their visas. So they're they're flying into the U.S. They're coming through airports and they overstay their visas. And we really don't have a very good system of tracking, you know, whether people overstay or not. So that's something that's a little more complicated than talking about a wall, but that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think a very fundamental problem with Mexico is that a lot of the people from Mexico, it's a poor country and the people are coming to do, uh, different jobs in the U.S., mostly jobs that Americans just don't want to do. It's impossible for the employers to find Americans to do these jobs. So uh, I, I just returned from a trip up to central California and agricultural fields all over the Central Valley and so on, and you just see hundreds and hundreds of um, Hispanic workers out there and if you know you talk to an employer who's going to be honest about it he's going to say well you know almost all these people are illegally in the United States but who else is going to pick the crops they're all going to die out there in the fields and it's the same thing with a lot of construction projects uh it's the same thing with nannies um <laughs> uh you know the gardeners um all, all sorts of different jobs that people are taking. I, I think it would be a lot, uh, a lot more practical and smarter to have temporary uh, programs for workers where they could come and hold their heads high and 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 work here. There, there's a couple of very small programs. That's probably one percent of all these workers in agricultural fields, but there's no visas, you know, for people from Mexico to be a nanny or a gardener or something. And yet they, they are doing most of the work here in, in uh, Southern California. Now it's moving to other states. So, you know, I think a wall is just uh, kind of an object for people to focus on. And yes, you know, we have a wall and that's going to stop illegal immigration, but it's not. Aside from the fact that a wall might not stop illegal immigration, um, the basis for it to some extent is, um, the belief that immigration policies under the previous president, Barack Obama, were were soft and that our borders were porous. But I understand that he earned the nickname from people in, say, your line of work as the deporter-in-chief and ended his tenure deporting the, the most number of Im illegal immigrants and that any president had in the past. Um, could you tell me about how maybe there's a bit of a dissonance there in terms of his actual actions um, regarding illegal immigration and then how he ended up with the reputation that he had such that it you know, allowed the Republican candidate to have a border wall be part of its um, policy platform. Yeah, I mean, he was the deporter in chief. Um, you know, he not only deported more people, usually average was about 400,000 a year until the last year or two of his presidency. Um, so not only did he deport more people than George Bush or his father or Clinton or Reagan, he deported more people than all the previous presidents put together. Uh, over two million people were deported under his administration. Um, but what he did, I think, very correctly 
is he said, look, you know, there, there's millions of people that are unlawfully in the U.S. Most of them, though, they're working, they're supporting their families. Um, a lot of them, the, the waiting times are so long to be able to get a green card that, um, you know, they, 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 their spouse may be a permanent resident or their kids may be citizens and they're working and paying taxes. We're just not going to make them priorities for deporting. I mean, the we can deport up to about 400,000 people a year. So I'm going to focus on serious criminals. And I'm also going to focus on people who are frequent border crossers. They're coming back and forth across the border all the time. Um, I didn't uh, necessarily agree with everything that President Obama did on immigration. One, one of the things that I thought was sort of shameful that he did is um, – Women and children from Central America who had their lives threatened were spending all the money they had to get all the way through Mexico and cross the U.S. border, and they did not sneak over the border. When they got over the border, they went to the nearest uh, guy in a uniform and said, hi, I'm from Honduras or I'm from El Salvador, and I'd like to apply for asylum. Um, and instead of you know, uh, referring them to somebody who could help them with their application, they immediately got arrested, and they're put in a series of prisons that are run by private authorities like the Correction Corporation of America. Um, and myself and a lot of my attorney friends have gone to places like Dilly, Texas, which is kind of in a very, very hot rural area. Nobody seems to know this is even happening in the U.S., um, and I remember, I, I have it on my webpage. I mean, they, they had people there and little kids there who were maybe eight years old and they had been incarcerated over a year and we were paying tons of money to the CCA to incarcerate these people. And fortunately, I, I was really lucky the week I was there, they actually, some of the long-term detainees were released and they decided that they would have a policy where they wouldn't keep people for months or years, but try to process them in a, a number of weeks. We, what we did is we prepared them for something called a credible fear interview. They had a dozen asylum officers from around the country inside the prison. And I have to tell you, I mean, these were people working for the government and they decided over 90 percent of the women and children did have good asylum cases. So they would release them usually with an ankle monitor or something and they would, you know, go and get jobs and wait for their hearings in front of an immigration judge. So, you know, Obama was far from perfect, but at, at least he had a. A policy where the most dangerous or threatening people in the U.S. did get deported. I did want to ask you about some of your personal experiences with immigrants from Central America and, and Mexico over these past few years, and perhaps also ask about what, uh, if you have clients that are certainly feeling some heat when it comes to talk about a wall or, say, a, a deportation force coming to, to round people up, what uh, what are some of these folks feeling, and what, what do you advise them? Um, yeah, so I, I have a, um, uh, the, the internet was a big blessing to me. When I worked for the immigration service, my first job was in, as a citizenship attorney. So I started a program where we volunteered and went out to a couple hundred classes to advise people, you know, how to apply for citizenship because a, a lot of people, particularly Hispanics, when they thought of the immigration service where you have to apply for citizenship, they thought, gosh, what if, what if I failed my interview? Would they put me on a green bus and I would end up in Mexico, even though they're permanent residents? So we try, you know, we tried to say, no, 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 don't, don't worry, you know. But, um, uh, when, when I left the immigration service, those programs all fell apart and I, I felt really bad. I thought people really need to be educated as far as their rights. And in the mid nineties, the internet came out and that, that was like the biggest blessing of all. So I have a, a fairly popular page at schusterman.com, my last name. And we have a newsletter that goes out for free every month, uh, for 22 years to about 60,000 people. So I had one that went out February 1st, just a couple of days ago, and, and we have 10, 10 different recommendations for what people should do. But, you, you know, to get to your question about, well, what happens if 
immigration knocks on your front door and and uh, and wants to you know take you away or something, the the immigration uh, service and I you know I know from when I worked there uh, that they, they have a very good way of convincing people to give up their rights, <laughs> um, and you know you're 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 not standing there with an attorney or something, so people are not usually very well informed. But when the immigration officer comes to your door and then asks you questions and determines that you're not legally in the United States, that they'll frequently say things like, look, you could go to jail for five years, you could pay a quarter of a million dollar fine, but if you sign here and here, then we'll just ship you back to your country, but you you won't go to jail or anything like that. And most people think, wow, okay, uh, <laughs> that would be a lot better than going to jail or paying a quarter of a million dollar fine. So I'm going to take his advice and sign there. Um, we're advising them, do not make a statement uh, about your legality or, or illegality. Do not, um, do not sign any forms. The only thing that people should do is they have a right to have uh, a hearing before an immigration judge, and they have a right to hire an attorney for that hearing. Government's not going to provide them with an attorney, but they can hire one. A lot of these people have been over in the U.S. over 10 years, and they have kids that are U.S. citizens, which entitles them to apply for something called cancellation of removal. There's strict numerical limits on this, so not more than 4,000 people a year are going to get it, but it doesn't mean people can't apply for it if they fulfill that criteria and they don't have a criminal record. Um, and they, in 90 days, they'll get work cards. So if if uh, President Trump is going to authorize raids, which I think are coming pretty soon, um, I, I just would encourage these people to get the word out to not sign any paperwork, not not make statements, just ask for a right uh, to see an immigration judge and to have an attorney before they'll make a statement. And I think a lot of them will, could actually benefit, ironically, by being picked up. News reports have suggested that another ex- executive order could be imminent, this one regarding legal uh, immigrants and specifically those who potentially might end up on social services or who are, are currently using social services, such as welfare and, and the like, and such an order might make it legal to, I guess, uh, on the one hand, target folks attempting to apply for, for immigrant visas or to come into the country, but also to target for deportation people in the country uh, as well um, who you know, have been admitted and are, are legal immigrants. Do you think that such an ex- executive order is likely to to issue and aren't there already some restrictions regarding these sorts of things uh, immigrants and social services well I, I do think it is likely I mean and anybody's guess exactly what what's going to be in there I uh, but as far as the present legal system uh, I mean for many years I mean for generations people who are likely to become a public charge, in other words, to go on welfare, and are not eligible for green cards. And then I remember in 1996, the, um, a, a new law was passed to make it even more stringent that you would need somebody who is a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident who would give you an affidavit of support before you could get a, a green card. And with that affidavit of support, um, if you did go on welfare or any of these public benefit programs, the, the government could come to the person who did the affidavit of support and said, pay up. You know, you're, you, you guarantee that uh, if this person would take any welfare money that you would pay the government back. So that's already part of the law. Um, and somebody who does come in as a permanent resident of the U.S., the rule is that for the first five years that they're permanent resident, they cannot get any means-tested government benefits. So, you know, there there's so many different types of programs that some will come under these means-tested and some won't. I would guess that, you know, Mr. Trump's executive order would probably make almost, you know, any program where you're getting any money from the government uh, into a means-tested 
government uh, benefit. But, you know, I don't I, I think it's probably really blown out of proportion that, you know, most people who come to the United States are not going on welfare or they wouldn't have made it through all these hurdles. Um, so, you know, it's to me, it's another diversionary tactic to say, oh, you know, all these people, they're criminals, they're they're welfare cheats. Um, but it's, it's just not true. I mean, these <laughs> I've met these people, um, you know, for 40 years. And if if anything, they're really hard workers. I understand another legal immigration program could be in jeopardy, the H-1B visa program, which I believe is in the context of highly skilled workers. Uh, how, how do you think this program could be affected? Um, well, I think it definitely will be affected. Unfortunately, this program has sort of been cut to the bone. When I, when I first started out as an immigration attorney when I left the government, which was in 1982, I mean, we would bring hundreds of people in on what was called an H-1 uh, visa. It's a temporary visa for professionals. And we'd bring in nurses for the, all the local hospitals because there's always been a huge nurse shortage. We would bring in scientists, engineers, architects, you know, you, you name it. Um, when the 1990 immigration law passed, uh, it increased the numbers of green cards for, um, people through their jobs. It used to be mostly a family-oriented system, so it really expanded the number of people. That, w- that was under the first uh, Bush presidency. Um, but the, the, the unions were, were not very happy with all of this, so the one thing they demanded was that there be a numerical limit on the number of H-1Bs, which is presently 85,000 a year, and that there be a prevailing wage requirement, which I think is a smart thing. They don't want to bring in U.S., I mean, foreign workers that are undercutting U.S. workers. So they have to pay them at the prevailing wage. But there's so much demand now for these H-1B workers that there has to be a lottery every year. This past year, the employers applied for 236,000 workers and only 85,000 are going to get picked. So it's about a one in three. Um, so unfortunately, in the IT, in the, um, in the computer sector, there's a bunch of really large Indian companies that uh, bring college graduates from India to the U.S., and then they, they call them job shops, and they they make contracts with U.S. employers like, hey, we, we've trained these hundred guys on, you know, how to program in this particular language. It's just very new language and your career employees may not know how to do this. And there's, there's been a, a couple huge news stories uh, about Americans being replaced by H-1B workers, which is not the intent of the program. So I, I do, you know, on one hand, I do favor, uh, you know, a crackdown on these type of, of uh, abuses of the program. On the other hand, I don't, I don't think there should be an 85,000 uh, limit because, um, you know, these workers are really vital. I mean, Silicon Valley is totally up in arms in, in, uh, in previous administrations. They actually were able to bump the number up to 195,000. Uh, but for the last few years, it's just stayed at 85000 a year, which is, is really pretty small. But a lot, lot of these people are in Silicon Valley or in companies that need IT workers. But I, I can tell you there's other people. I, I represent a lot of uh, medical research laboratories. And when, when I go over to these laboratories where they're trying to come up with new cures for different types of cancers and, and, and g- diseases that malaria, things that have plagued us for years, most of the scientists that I come into contact with are from foreign countries, and they all have questions about visas. I I mentioned before physicians working in underserved areas. Um, I, you know, I I think that they have to be very careful on what restrictions they're going to put on the program. Uh, Things that I've heard is that... um, they would say, oh, well, we'll give it the 85000 to the highest paid workers. You know, anybody, 
you'd have to make over $100,000 a year to qualify. Well, you know, that's sort of, it's good maybe when you're talking about some of these computer programmers, but what people don't realize is like uh, teachers in inner city um, neighborhoods. I've, I've spent years meeting with a lot of people from the Philippines and I don't think people realize that school districts, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, all over the country, um, they cannot find enough teachers to go to areas. So when, one of the things they do is they hire H-1B teachers and they go to those areas. And there's no way the school districts are able to pay these guys $100,000 a year. So, um, you know, there will be a priority system, I think, People who graduate, you know, foreign-born people who graduate from college in the U.S., maybe it makes sense to give them some priority. Um, but I, I, I just hope that the, you know, if there's going to be an executive order on this, that they they consider all the factors and and don't come out with an executive order like the wall or something where it it sort of makes sense if if you just have one sentence, but when you get into the details. It doesn't make a lot of sense. We, the the H one B workers are tremendous for the U S. A lot of the I T workers have gone on and formed their own companies and employ hundreds of thousands of American workers. So it's not a job drain; it's a job creator. This program. There are also visas uh, affiliated with with NAFTA. I understand uh, trade NAFTA visas, and obviously NAFTA is in some jeopardy, at least according to many reports. Um, what, uh, what what could you tell me about these visas? Uh, right. Uh, I mean, r- right now, um, there's tens of thousands of people working in the U.S. on trade NAFTA visas, TN visas, uh, most of them being from Canada and some of them being from Mexico. Again, they're all professional people working in the United States. Um to, but to get you an, and, 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 and Donald Trump, I, I think when he was running for presidency, you know, said that NAFTA was really a terrible trade deal and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm not in a position to judge whether it was a good deal or not. But I can tell you in terms of, uh, employers in the United States, uh, they, a lot of them wouldn't be able to carry on without TN workers, and I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Right now, the nurse shortage is is really coming back in in like a tsunami to the United States. And I I represent over a hundred uh, hospital employers, and they cannot find enough Amer- you know experienced American nurses to take jobs to take care of us. Our, I'm part of the baby boomer generation, and we're getting older. We need medical care. Um, so they're doing what they've done in the past, which is looking abroad to bring nurses into the United States. But the, the largest country, as far as supplying the U.S. with nurses, has always been the Philippines. Um, hundreds of thousands of Filipino nurses who become American citizens and are uh, uh, working in, in hospitals in the U.S., but now the quotas are so backed up for green cards because they have these ridiculous country quotas that no country can have more than a certain person, 7% of any uh, category for green cards. Well, the Philippines, I mean, they bring over maybe 80, 90% of all the nurses. So if it's 7%, the backlogs are tremendous. Um, right now it's over six years for a hospital in the U.S. to get a Filipino nurse, a green card, and they've taken away, they used to get the H-1B visas, and then they made nurses largely ineligible for the, 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 the Philippine nurses all have four-year degrees, but the nurses they work next to in the U.S. hospitals, um, most of them just have community college two-year degrees, so they don't qualify for an H-1B visa. So what have we done? I mean, we've tried to be creative about it. Over the last few years, because the Filipino nurses couldn't get into the U.S., they, Canada was very welcoming. So there's thousands and thousands of nurses born in the Philippines who are now Canadian citizens. And if they are and want to come to the U.S., the easiest way to do it is on these TN visas. 
So we've been bringing in large numbers of Filipino and Indian and all, all sorts of uh, nationalities of nurses who really wanted to come to the U.S., but our requirements were too restrictive, and we're bringing them in from Canada. Uh, if NAFTA is repealed, then then TM visas won't exist anymore. Not only won't we be able to bring uh, TN nurses from Canada, but the TN nurses presently in the U.S. will all have to pack up and return to Canada. And for a lot of hospitals that, and a lot of patients, of course, that would be a disaster. We've addressed you know, many legal issues or legal aspects of the, this, this issue, but um, in, in hearing your answers, also economic concerns certainly predominate. Um, and folks on both sides of the issue will will cite economic concerns. Um, those in favor of restricting immigration will, will say that immigrants will, will be an economic drain. But in many of your answers, you, you're citing industries that are dependent um, partially or almost entirely on an a uh, workforce, including immigrants. So if you had to surmise what may the net economic effect would be of a, a restrictive immigration policy, how would you um, surmise it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really would be a disaster. I mean, people should think about, uh, you know, companies, huge companies that are major employers in the U.S. and, and you know, whether their founders <laughs> were born here or maybe some of them immigrated uh, uh, Intel, the biggest chip maker in the world, um, w- w- one of the heads of uh, Andy Andy Grove was an immigrant from Hungary. Uh, Google, Sergey Sir Brin from was a was a refugee from the Soviet Union. Uh, Jerry Yang from Yahoo, he was Chinese. You know, I mean, <laughs> you can go through Silicon Valley companies, and not only Silicon Valley, but you know, California is really the worldwide home of the biotech uh, industry, um, Amgen, Genentech, huge amount of, of immigrant scientists, you know, working at these companies, um, helping cure different types of diseases and creating jobs for American workers. I've already mentioned about the doctors working in the underserved areas and the growing nurse shortage the teachers in the inner cities, the agriculture, the nannies. I mean, uh, you know, un- unfortunately, I mean, if uh, I, I know when Trump uh, appointed uh, Jeff Sessions, nominated him to be attorney general, I mean, my, my, my heart just stopped for a minute because uh, Jeff Sessions, he might be a really nice, polite guy personally, but when you look at his uh Immigration. Just go to his website. You know, no, don't don't trust the news reports. Go right to his website, and there are seventy or eighty news releases. He wants to cut the number of green cards coming to the U.S., which are about a million a year, which may seem like a lot when you say a million, but it's when you look at the population of the United States, which is over three hundred and thirty million people. You you know it's only a small fraction of 1% of the population and frankly if we didn't have immig- if we didn't have immigrants i think our country would be sort of more like japan where uh, the the birth rate is not very high we're not welcoming people of different races and religions and the economy will start to stagnate even you know even though there's a lot of great workers in both countries so the, the the U.S. has, you know, been sort of like an open door policy to qualified people. I, I, I frankly think, you know, if they're going to change the immigration system in any way, uh, they should have more immigrants, but, you know, more professionals, more scientists, more doctors, nurses, IT people, skilled people in the U.S. And this is what is really propelling our economy forward if uh uh, people like Sessions seem to go along with the uh, game plan of anti-immigration organizations like the FAIR and Numbers USA. And if you really dig deep into their policies, um, you, you, you know you can't help but see that they're not happy with uh, people with brown skin coming into the U.S. They we want to keep America white. We want there to be a moratorium on immigration. Um, 
So those million people a year, they would like to cut it. Most of those organizations want to cut it to between 250,000 and 300,000 a year. And it, it would it would have terrible effects on the U.S. economy and would also send the U.S. back to this very discriminatory age. Uh, I mean, I, I think people don't realize that before the 1965 Act, uh, most Asians were not welcome to the U.S. In fact, they were considered in the law. They had the term racially ineligible for U.S. citizenship. You know, to me, it would almost like saying, let's, you know, let's repeal all the civil rights laws and go back to segregation or maybe back to slavery or something. And and you know, all I say is immigration has been a tremendous benefit to the U.S. Let's not go back to those very dark times. Sure. Yeah. I mean, going back and looking through the history of immigration policy in the United States is essentially seeing a variations on a very fairly unfortunate theme going back to the very beginning with the alien sedition acts i think targeted some some french and irish immigrants and the no nothing party and and the chinese exclusion act and and i believe there's act in the 1920s targeting immigrants from from southern europe and eastern europe um, so it seems like anti-immigrant sen- sentiment will tend to recur in our country do you think this is just another iteration of that is there something unique in this period? Do you think the pendulum has reached its apex and will start to, to swing back now? Um, well, yeah, the, 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 you know, it's always been something in our history that the latest immigration group is always put down and and, it, and is blamed for everything that's wrong. I mean, there, obviously, there are a lot of wrong things in society, but they have nothing to do with immigration. Um, you know, when, when I grew up, I remember big auto plants and um, aerospace companies out in the San Fernando Valley where I grew up, and they've all closed up. And, you know, the, the coal mining, the <laughs> a lot of industries, um, you know, call centers, when you call somebody, usually the companies, in order to save money, they locate their call centers abroad. The manufacturing has you know, deserted places like Michigan and Ohio. And uh, I, I can totally understand why these people are very upset. You know, you know, we all have this goal that we'll do better than our parents. And they look and their parents had, you know, well-paying unionized jobs that are totally gone. And you go to states like Kentucky or West Virginia and the, the, the opiate uh, epidemics are going wild in those states. There's also the issue of automation. So even if the jobs weren't shipped abroad, even for the people that are abroad, they're, you know, they, they'll eventually lose a lot of the jobs to automation. You know, it's, I don't know what it's comparable, comparable with. It may be comparable with, uh, the industrial revolution and everybody used to work in agriculture. And then, you know, the Luddites got mad and thought, Oh my God, they're putting kids and women to work 12 hours a day in these factories and they would go in and destroy the machines and so on. So right, you know, right now, I mean, there's a lot of people that have seen their jobs just go away and and they want somebody to blame it on. Uh, As far as immigration, I I remember when I was in school, I'd read about Benjamin Franklin saying, boy, the Germans, they're, they're the worst thing that ever happened to the U.S. They'll never learn English, they're in their communities, and then Germans got, probably were one of the great assimilators in American society, and then by the middle of the 19th century, it was the Irish, and we don't want Catholics here, and so on. By the 1920s, it became Italians, and Catholics, and Jews, and now, of course, it's it's Mexicans, and I, I remember, I couldn't help myself, about a year ago, I was in Costco, and there was this book, Adios America by Ann Coulter. And I was reading a few pages of it. And I, I, w- I was sort of horrified and impressed at the same time because Ann Coulter is no dummy. She's a smart woman. But the way she was phrasing all the immigration stuff and, you know, every page was about a, a, a guy, you know, Jose Ramirez, who was a murderer, rapist. And, you know, you just, you, after a while, you started generalizing, like, oh, I guess all Mexicans are like that, you know. Um, 
but she was talking about some legal things about our immigration policy. And she said the 65 bill, the one that opened the door to various nationalities that had been excluded from the U.S., was really this liberal democratic plot, which she says over and over again in the book, uh, orchestrated by Teddy Kennedy to have a, a democratic majority in Congress for, you know, forever. And I thought, okay, we're, we're in the internet age. I'm going to look, I'm going to look up the vote on the 65 bill to see whether she's making this up or whether she's really right. You know, I mean, facts don't lie. And I looked at the vote and the Democrats voted for the bill by about a two to one margin. And the Republicans in the House and the Senate voted for it 80 to 90 (laughs) percent. So I thought, you know, I I, I don't know that a lot of the readers of her book are looking this up, but uh, (laughs) but but it's not just this liberal plot by Teddy Kennedy or why would all the Republicans be voting for the liberal plot and the Democrats not so much. You know, we want to have somebody to blame for the ills that are, uh, you know, all all over the society with jobs disappearing, or at least actually the unemployment rate is very low. But, you know, somebody whose dad worked on an assembly line for General Motors and made 80,000 a year, and maybe uh, they thought, well, you know, I don't have to, you know, go to college and stuff, and I can do the same thing. And now they're working for Target or Walmart for $12 an hour. I can understand they're pretty upset about this, but, you know, building a wall and all all these things that the administration has been proposing and now implementing, I guess, um, th- there's going to come a time when these people are going to realize this, this is not the solution to the problem. It's just taking taking the newest immigrant group and blaming them for all the ills that have befallen um, the United States. And that's that's not the smart way to go forward. The economic fallout that that you describe that could result from restrictions on immigration, dramatic restrictions, if if that is as foreseeable as you say it is, and uh, Trump is nominally a businessman and certainly his administration is is full of folks from the business sector, could those realities mediate um, you know his in, intended and spoken of plans with regard to to immigration? Do you think? You know, well, I'm, I'm hoping for that because, you know, I, I did a lot of reading during the election on, on Trump's background and his businesses. And, you know, uh, as we all know, he'll he'll be the first one to say, I, I created a great business. I did this. I did that. Um, but Trump has made a huge amount of use of the immigration programs when it when it came to his businesses. Um uh, you know, so I think as a businessman, he he sees the value of having these immigrant workers, um, uh, and both Trump and myself we're both married to immigrants, so we're we're not anti-immigrant. And I think that these people in the business community, certainly the guy he applied, you know, who uh, he nominated for Secretary of State, his restrictive immigration people that supported him went almost crazy because this guy was. Uh, 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 you know, the CEO of a major fast food company that employed thousands and thousands of people from other countries, not always legal either, and has has continued to promote that. You know, I'd, I'd rather have a guy from Mexico than, you know, <laughs> the, the immigrant groups have gone crazy. So you, it's hard to know what to make of the president. You know, will be will he be swayed? by Silicon Valley, the business interest, you know, I mean, he says, uh, you know, we want to make America great. Uh, You know, is he going to support the business interest or is he going to support uh, essentially bigoted interests that are are looking down on immigrants as the cause of everything bad that's happened to them? But it's just they don't know who to blame, so they bl- they blame people from Mexico because they're they're the newest immigrant group, and or they may blame Muslims because you know there are there are people who have had terrorist attacks, even though none of you know none of them have come from those countries that have been banned. You know, you, you have to have a policy that is going to make sense, and I, I I hope he's smart enough to to you know, come around to policies that are going to make sense and not just beat up on immigrants who have nothing to do with these problems. Okay, uh, last one. As an immigration attorney, do you imagine that these next few months and years of the Trump administration will, will be 
particularly busy ones for you. And how do you imagine immigration policy ending up, say, say at the, the end of this president presidency? Well, I, yeah, I can already see it's been extremely busy first week. <laughs> then not only busy with people calling me, but I mean, the number of people that have been on my website in the last week has like exceeded everything that's happened in the last 23 years. I look at Google Analytics and I see people all over the place, all over the world, actually, looking at these things that we've been talking about. Um, and it's panicking a lot of immigrants. They, you know, they don't feel safe anymore. Um, yes, I mean, I've had a lot of people come from uh, Middle Eastern countries. But surprisingly enough, I've had a lot of Filipinos, a lot of Chinese, a lot of people from India who are professionals. They're doctors, they're nurses, they're <laughs> computer programmers. And there are, you know, a lot of them are, have been green card holders for years who, and maybe they didn't bother applying for naturalization. And now they're really shaken up like, my God, I better get naturalized as quickly as possible, or maybe I'll get deported with the next Trump order. So it's, it's, it's created a real, a real panic among immigrant communities all around the United States. Um, you know, I'm I'm the ultimate optimist. So when you ask what he'll do in in the future, you know, one thing that he had pledged to do on his first day of office was to get rid of the DACA program for the kids. And then when he got elected, I saw him on some news program, and you know, all of a sudden he drew back from that and said, you know, I you know I did I didn't uh, appreciate the president just taking away the congressional responsibility, but we're going to come up with a solution for these kids. So, you know, like I said previously, I, I don't think he's going to deport them. I think he's going to try to get both sides in the Congress to come up with a bill to protect them, and then he'll sign it and say, see, I mean, they're good people. But I, I'm hoping that, you know, if he's rational enough about the kids on DACA, that he ultimately will resist some of these efforts of people like Jeff Sessions and so on, who would like to really cut off most immigration. Um, but you know, the first the first week wasn't very hopeful. So I don't, I don't know. It might be my great optimism. It might not happen. And if it doesn't happen, we'll we'll be in federal court constantly challenging some of these policies. Okay. Well. Certainly, we'll find out soon enough. Uh, for now, I'm cognizant of taking up quite a bit of your time, and I should let you get back to your, your swelling workload. Mr. Carl Schustermer, thanks so much for, for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That completes our show for February 10th. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, CLE credit is available for listeners of the show. I'm Brian Cardo. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>